I, I just had a, literally an image in my head of a wall that went to infinity, and I just had to climb the wall. And I just remember thinking, all right, just one one brick at a time. Just start putting my pegs in the wall, and I, I'm just going to start climbing. I'm not even going to look at the top. I'm just going to keep climbing. And all of a sudden, I was climbing over that wall a couple of years later. I couldn't, couldn't believe it. Hey everyone, welcome to the Founder Hour podcast. This is your co-host, Posh. For episode 37, we had the pleasure of sitting down with Dr. Drew Pinsky, celebrity doctor, addiction medicine specialist, and media personality. He's been the host of nationally syndicated shows such as Loveline, Dr. Drew on Call, Life Changers, and Celebrity Rehab with Dr. Drew, among many others. He's also a former medical director at Los Encinas Hospital in Pasadena staff member at Huntington Memorial Hospital, and a private practitioner. We talk about how Dr. Drew got his start on radio while still a student at medical school, his passion for singing and music, and how he has been able to manage burnout throughout his entire career. Dr. Drew also shed light on many of today's most important topics, happiness, the meaning of life, mental health, therapy, the future of media, and the current political climate from a psychological perspective. Tune in to hear Dr. Drew's amazing story of how he took the unconventional route and put himself in uncomfortable situations to become who he is today. Oh, and while you're listening, please make sure to subscribe and give us a rating. It really means a lot. Thank you. Hey, everyone. I am Posh. I'm I'm here with Pat. And we are lucky to be with Dr. Drew today at his home. Thank you for inviting us, Dr. Drew. Thank you for doing this. It's easy for me. I rolled out of bed. (laughs) And I just want to give a quick shout out to our mutual friend, Rafi Premian, who helped connect us and uh, get us, uh, you know, this opportunity to talk give, to you. Give full respect to our, his wife. And, that's, and that's, Silva, who probably is the one that really told him to do it. It's the wife yeah. that got us going. Yeah. And, and then your he's... wife was the one that I've been communicating that's with right. all this so time. Silva and my wife are close. Yeah. And uh, Silva's, yeah. Silva's a jeweler downtown and my yep. wife cannot get enough of her stuff. So, <laughs> And I was telling you before we started, we we had met one time. And I know you don't remember and I don't blame you. And I was also a much heavier dude back then. Mm. Uh, so... We met at a fundraiser for a nonprofit that I was helping out with called LA to DC. And, uh, you know, there was a bunch of these celebrity folks and, you know, very influential people there. And it was a great opportunity to raise money. It was for uh, genocide recognition in general. Uh, So, you know, I've known you even before then and then following you since then. So we're definitely excited to be here to talk about, you know, your upbringing, your journey and, you know, some hot topics, you know, whether it's mental health, whether it's uh, stuff that we were talking about before, including, you know, um, growing up in an immigrant family and just how people, you know, children are treated, and a bunch of other things that'll come up, I'm sure. So, but uh, you've you've kept the streak alive. Uh, I I have yet to begin a conversation with any of my Armenian friends that the genocide isn't discussed in the first 180 seconds. So well done. Well done. We're doing a lot. I tried to make it. I tried to make it so that I didn't say Armenian genocide. I just said genocide recognition. Uh, but I, I knew what you're talking about. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, but uh, and for those people around the country, you know. Uh, it's so funny, you know. I do a lot of work around the country, and uh, you have to sort of explain where Armenia is, what the Armenian genocide is, and you have to identify oh, yeah. Kardashians and figures out That's there. That's where that it all would, starts. Yeah. Well, but you'd be able to sort of point at, yeah. you know, because Armenians have tr- tremendous success in the community yeah. mm-hmm. at large, and so, and, and unless you're from Southern California, you don't really realize there's a mm-hmm. concentrated community here. Yeah. 
and uh, so I've always been very close to it and appreciate all my friend, Armenian friends. Well, we appreciate you. Yeah. Saying and, that. and we were talking about the Armenian parenting style and how much. <laughs> how, uh, by the way, oh, I've got a whole. Uh, I don't know if you want to get into this. Go for it. This is not. Let's do it. But I have. I have a. I have a pet theory. I, I believe that the Armenian population is the lost tribe of Israel. I believe it. You went because I was grew, I was raised Jewish, even though I, my mother was not. Yeah. And moving in and out of that community, it's exactly the same. Yeah. The parenting is the same. Mm-hmm. The culture is the same. Uh-huh. The values are the same. Some the, some the, of the food is the same. The food is the same. <laughs> the special language you use occasionally, and you move in and out of it. You know, the, the, the clergy is the same. The relationship with the clergy is the same. It's insane how mm-hmm. close how close the cultures are. Right. So, I mean, and he, Mount Ararat. Uh, 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 Noah landed there, didn't he? I mean, that's there right. you go. That's, that's so, what they say. Yeah. yeah. So, I mean, but if you think about it, even during the Armenian genocide, like you know, Armenians were living in the Ottoman Empire, where the Turks were, where the you know Assyrians, Greeks. I mean, everybody really coexisted. Yeah. Which is crazy to think that you know, a few years later, like it was a shit show, and now to this day, well, it kind of still lasts. And, and to be fair, I mean, the that those tribes always got scapegoated. To be fair, I mean, yeah. think about it. Yeah. Always became a there's just so much history. Just like you don't even know where it all started, history but it could have all started in the same place. <laughs> well, it's we, interesting, we right? Isn't that interesting? Very but, interesting. But, the, yeah. the, but I value what you value to a great extent. So we appreciate that. So I know that you were born in Pasadena, yeah, where we're also sitting right Which now. So not, you, you haven't nuts. really gone too far away. Thank from you. Home. Thank you. Um, you know, are you afraid of you know leaving your no? Home? Uh, what ha- it's an, I, I, a lot of things happen to me by accident, or, okay. or you know, who knows whatever some conscious motivators were there, but. My perception was that it was just, oh, well, here I am. So uh, I went to college back east, kind of figured I'd stay back there, but uh, got into SC Medical School, really wanted to go there. I really loved the county. I wanted to have, I wanted to be a clinician, so the idea of being at the county was really exciting to me. And um, came back, and where was everybody living? All of my students, all my classmates that lived, that went to medical school at SC, they all lived in Pasadena and yeah. South Pasadena. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So now here I am living in Pasadena. And then I did a residency at hospitals here in mm-hmm. Pasadena. And then once you do a residency here, you're all of a sudden connected with all the consulting staff. Now you're setting up practice here. And that was that. Mm-hmm. And once once I did that, um, then my kids went to the same high school I went to and stuff. So it just was another quick generation. Whether we stay here, I don't know. Mm. So that's what, that's what stuck us here. Did you study? I mean, did you always want to become a doctor? I did. I, well, I think it was more of an assumption. My dad was a doctor, and my uncle was a doctor, and it was sort of an assumption that I rebelled against for a short time in college, and then came back to and had to get my crap together very, very quickly, and did. And and when I when I got back to it after screwing around for a couple of years, I was really committed. I mean, I was in, and it was mine at that point. It was my my decision to be a part of that, and. Uh, I never looked back. It was just fun for me. One thing that, like, when you talk to, like, a doctor, a perspective, you know, doctor to be, uh, you know, the the dilemma is always, like, well, which direction do I take this this in? In in medicine? In medicine. But for you, it's kind of like, I know your mother was a singer, so I I think I read somewhere that you were, like, even thinking about being an opera singer. Yeah, I did. (laughs) That's when I was screwing around for those couple years. That's what I was toying with. I'm and, assuming you were like a bass, or were you baritone? Like a little baritone, okay. sort of a lyric baritone, okay. but yeah. a Verity baritone. I could do all the Verity roles. Yeah, yeah. And, and, um, and I, I'm a horrible, horrible... One of my sons is a musician, a real musician, uh-huh. and now his piano teacher was an Armenian gentleman. So, and, and, uh, <laughs> You're the one that keeps bringing it up, by the way. I love it. <laughs> and uh, his... Um, he's a real musician, and I was a terrible musician. And now that I've lived with a real musician, I've no, I realize just how bad of a musician I was and thank God I didn't make any attempt to go after that that profession. 
would have been a disaster. So I know you're, um, you know, in medical school, and if if I have my math correctly, uh, you were kind of like, I mean, you're still a medical student, and you already kind of started getting into television and doing kind of media. Radio? Oh no, no. Or, or More was it radio? Was More it online radio? Radio. Oh, it started as radio. Okay, in 1983. Sorry. Yeah, yeah. So I lived by the radio station, and people were socializing with people that worked at this radio station. That sort of K Rock came out of nowhere in 1983. Yeah, it was it was nothing, and then all of a sudden it was the dominant radio station, like overnight. Mm -hmm. And we were all listening to it, but I lived right next to it. And a friend of mine called me and said, they, hey, they do this show at night. They need some help. The, they'd been charged to make it a community service show, and they didn't know what to do. And my friend goes, I, you'll come in, and you'll use big words. It'll be really funny. We'll do a segment called Ask a Surgeon. I'm like, yeah. what? Like, what are you talking about? <laughs> anyway, I met with them, was freaked out, but was kind of convinced to do it, and came in with my textbooks and stuff. Yeah. And, and heard these questions, these amazing questions being asked of FM Distrock. He's in the middle of the night. And I was like, Jesus and nobody knew about AIDS. Huh. Nobody. And we were we, even the physicians, we were still just evolving from calling it GRIDS to AIDS, gay-related intestinal disease syndrome to AIDS. We had, didn't have a causative agent yet. The term safe sex hadn't been coined mm -hmm. yet. Nothing. And nobody was talking to young people about it. And I thought, oh, my God, somebody's yeah. got to do this. And so had you, I mean, was this like while you were in medical school? Yeah, I was a fourth-year medical student. So you hadn't even like practiced? No, yeah. no I hadn't yeah. finished medical school yet. So did you like kind of think that, I mean, did you like throughout your childhood, um, going back to how your mother was a singer, a professional singer, uh, did you have it in your mind that like, I want to get into the media space Absolutely eventually? Not. That categorically, oh, It just no. happened. This was like, I, I knew that in, in my second year of medical school, I found myself going... I need to get a vocal coach again to start singing because I miss that. So, so I, I always had that part of me that I needed sort of an outlet. Yeah. And maybe this was part of that, which is why I took to it. But what compelled me was nobody was talking to young people about HIV. I mean, mm -hmm. that was that blew my mind, mm -hmm. and that they never heard of it. And right. and and uh, a couple of years in, when I was now in residency, my residency director flipped his lid saying it was inappropriate, you don't talk about this material. You don't, you don't understand how different it was then. Mm -hmm. yeah. And I was like, no, you, you don't understand. I, I, I'm 24 years old. I know what young people are doing, and they need to hear this. Right. And it was just this body of information that I now understood, and it would be so easy to communicate it to young people. I thought, we, we got to do it. And th was it like an epidemic? I, I don't, you know, don't want to call it, it was an epidemic now, but like, was it, was, it? Oh, it was terrible. You can't, you can't even imagine how a dark time it was. Mm -hmm. I was... I was Every, a week would not go by that I wasn't telling a healthy, you know, a young man, yeah. you have six months to live. Really? And that was it. There, and this and there is was, you as a student. As a student, by his resident right, by that right, point. Right. And it was just, it was just so sad. It's one of the most sad, people are not aware how horrible and, this was. And was it, I mean, at that time, like, had there been a lot of, uh, like, developments in kind of, like, to, trying to develop a cure? Yes, like, AZT even, came along then. Yeah. And those damn, the Dallas Buyers Club worked against us. It was a mess. Mm. They, they were terrible. They, they were at first good when we had no treatments. Good, please, whatever you guys can do. Once we started having treatments, they undermined everything we were trying to do. And it, listen, in the history of medicine, the fact that a syndrome was identified, the epidemiology worked out, a causative agent found and the biology characterized and then effective treatments all in about 15 years took a thousand years to figure out yeah. what was causing syphilis. Yeah. I mean, it's un Oh, that's insane when you it's look at it. insane. And people yeah. are like, what well, took so long? You don't understand. This, is, this was the most unbelievable mobilization of biological right. minds in history. 
And and thank God, because it was just the most horrific thing you can imagine. And this is like pre-Magic Johnson coming out with yeah, the early, HIV. So, yeah. you know, nobody really is even talking about it. No, they they, they were talking about it. Oh, yeah, there was every every day in the paper, there was a article about it, but no one was really talking about how you got it. Got and it. no one was talking to young people, and no one was talking about how to prevent it. Got no, it. The term safe sex had not been coined yet. And I was like, hey, condoms, yeah. everybody. That was it. That was yeah. that was my first, you know, move. Like, and it, I know there were some like big celebrities at the time that actually passed away from. I mean, was oh, it yeah, Freddie Mercury, Hudson, Rock like, Hudson, Freddie Mercury, uh, really? Easy E. Oh, it's very easy later. Yeah, nineties. Yeah, but but oh god, it was a terrible time. Yeah, really rough. So, is that something that you were? So, once you graduated or you were in residency, you want to continue on this path of preventing HIV and AIDS or is there you, by, you by like then a surgeon no no I never wanted to be a surgeon I am not interested in that I, I want like my patients awake what happened was I started moon <laughs> I started moonlighting at a psychiatric hospital and I got very interested in that um, and love line that was still one night a week yeah. <laughs> Sunday night late like 11 to 2 10 to 1 and, and what were you talking about was it more than just on love line yeah. there's an awful lot of STDs and birth control because there was nowhere for people to go for that information there was no internet yeah. and there was no rel- relatable reliable source and so it was it was the resource and then as the 90s kicked in we, we started talking about relationships and trauma and repetitive patterns in relationships and because that's what started emerging was this horrible epidemic we'd been through of childhood sexual abuse, mm-hmm. physical abuse, and we started seeing all that stuff. Mm-hmm. And um, and then it went to five nights a week, and then some guy came along and said, do you want to make a TV show in the mid-'90s? And I was like, well, what the hell is that? I have no idea. Just leave me alone to practice medicine. Yeah, I literally was like, I will, I'll give you Friday and Saturday afternoon. That's it. Mm-hmm. If you can do a TV show on those. So we would do six shows a day, wow. Friday and Saturday afternoon. We didn't even realize we were doing something kind of weird. Yeah. Um, and did you see a future for yourself in this at the time? Because I know you were also um, the chief resident at Huntington Hospital. Uh, that I mean, was, so you did practice after. Oh yeah, as like oh, a yeah. Oh, yeah. I had I had a huge practice for about fifteen years. Okay, so I, it was, I like was kind of simultaneous. I, I, I well, yeah, that's why I said I'd only let them do this TV show in this little court. Right. I had I I had an inpatient medical practice, which was a lot of intensive care medicine. I had an outpatient medical practice where I'd see about twenty or thirty patients a day. I had a nursing home practice. And then I went to the psychiatric hospital. Mm-hmm. For about five years, I ran their chem- their medical services. And then for 20 years, I ran their chemical dependency services. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And these were, I would get up at 5.30 in the morning, and I would struggle to get home by 10 at night. Yeah. Every day, every yeah. day, every day. So, that was insane. For That was, by, the end, by many years into that, I started having dread. I was overdoing it. Mm-hmm. Workaholism. What, what did you do when you realized that you were overdoing it? Um... You know what started happening, at least this is my perception in retrospect, is that the television started sort of creeping in. And so I started, it slowly forced me to start reducing, like I gave up doing the medical services at the psychiatric hospital. I got a partner at the psychiatric uh, drug unit. I started doing less inpatient work and getting an intensivist to help me Mm. and just sort of slowly moved in that direction for a while. But I, all the while, though, I still was like, this is – television radio is fun and interesting. Leave me alone to practice medicine. Yeah. But were you becoming a known figure, a known name at the time while it, you were doing all this stuff? It, yeah. When MTV had Loveline, that was pretty popular. And, I mean, you're yeah. a young doctor at that point. So yeah, you're doing 30s. something that really it was no weird. doctors are doing. Yeah, it was weird. And uh, I got both vilified and right. praised. Mm-hmm. And, I, and I – at that point – was really not that guy. I was very uncomfortable with being singled out. Mm-hmm. 
Now I'm just so damn used to it. I don't care anymore. (laughs) But at that point, I was really unhappy with it because I just want—I wanted to be a good doctor and I wanted to toe the line. I, you know, I didn't want to step step out of line with my superiors. And on that point, I mean, something that we always talk about. Obviously, you know, you kind of hear about the successes, and that's something that if someone were to like go search your name, you, you see all. I mean, you've had an amazing career, but kind of like from I guess your perspective. Looking back, um, what was kind of like maybe the lowest point of your career or life? Like, was there a time where you're kind of juggling a bunch of things? I know one thing that we hear a lot is like, you know, you kind of have to figure it, figure it out. And to figure it out, you need to do, you know, you need to experience something. So was there like a time that you remember, I don't know, that it was like a tough time and you, how'd you come over? There were, it seemed like there were a lot of tough times, but but I feel like I always had so many diversified things going yeah. on. That I always had something I could move into. Uh, I, I I always kind of looked at things that I was doing career-wise almost the way you'd look at a stock portfolio. You'd have just diversified yep. things, and if something starts shrinking, you put more emphasis over here. Mm-hmm. Um, I remember. I remember when. Uh, Loveline ended. That was a bummer for me because that was really I really enjoyed doing that, and uh, I thought, well, that's about it. That's, mm-hmm. that's the end of this. Mm-hmm. And I didn't really contemplate that there'd be any more television. I kept it, it stayed on the radio. Yeah. Uh, and Adam and I had fun with that, but I just I didn't even I, didn't, I had no idea that there was anything further to be done. Mm-hmm. Uh, it just was a lot of fun doing that, and I missed it. That's mm-hmm. all. But and, and then the other thing was the sort of dread of overworking. Um, that took a and once you're you know, as a physician, when you're that overcommitted, mm-hmm. it's not something you can just stop. Yeah. It, it, it took about five years to unwind well, just to get things sort of sane again. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that took a while. And speaking of, I guess, burnout is, I mean, I yeah, that's what they the call sort of burnout, it. Yeah. Um, you know, what is your advice to, you know, professionals today, whether young or old, on ways of preventing burnout? Well, I, I think we live in a great time when you can do fun projects like this. Right. You can do so many different things. Don't... Do, my advice is don't stay in one lane. Mm-hmm. Don't do one thing. Just diversify a bit and, and, and don't be afraid to try things. And, and don't be – and you, you got to not be focused on strictly whether or not it's financially viable. Just you need to know whether it's spiritually viable, right. whether yeah. it's something you enjoy doing or not. That, that's really important. And it almost – it's almost advice like get a hobby, but it, it isn't because I'm saying it should all – I think it's a, it should be an expression of some synthetic I, – I really believe – that one of the keys is synthesizing everything about yourself. That that's what I felt like I was doing. Mm-hmm. Like all these different parts of me weren't getting used or expressed, right. and I was always trying to synthesize the pieces. And I'm still doing that. I'm still and there's no for me there's no blueprint of what I'm doing, which is yeah. scary and fun at the same right. time. Because I don't know I don't know what's next. I have no idea. I'm just always experimenting, mm-hmm. opening doors, seeing what's there. Which when you do that, that's that's the time that you actually are presented or even just you come across opportunity. I mean, if you're doing just one thing, you know, you're working the same place with the yeah. same people. Yeah. That's all you really know. You're in like and, this comfortable little And it's bubble. not going to change. Right. That, that's gonna that's going to persist. And if you're starting to burn out because it is so routine, mm-hmm. be careful. And on the flip side, if you're the entrepreneur, you know, I'm doing a bunch of these different things. Some might call it spreading yourself too thin. You can burn out uh, that way you too. You burn out yeah. that way as yep. well. It's I, I just feel like at this point in my life, it's more of a decision that a person has to make. You know, do I want... There's pros and cons to both, you know. 
do I want to choose this sort of life or this sort of life? And you just kind of go with it. Now, my, my concern is for the millennial population mm -hmm. is that that most of them are not doing what you did, which has got a, you got a professional training. Right. Having being an expert in something is really important. Mm -hmm. right. it, it it changes your thinking. It changes how you think about expertise. It changes how you approach problem solving. It you know, and you and it changes how you approach other experts and take other opinion in and evaluate that opinion. And I'm I'm convinced that millennials, because they're so entrepreneurial, they've skipped the part where you have to have something to offer, yeah. either in business training or legal training or medical, whatever it is, some sort of some sort of specialized training. Mm -hmm. So at least you have something to offer to begin with. It's not just hey, it's me. Yeah. And if it's hey, it's me, that's something I call the Dunning Kruger effect. You ever heard of the Dunning Kruger effect? I haven't, but I'm interested. Dunning Kruger effect is a is a psychopathology, or at least he, probably more accurately, a psychological observation. Uh, these two psychologists observe it, Dunning and Kruger, mm -hmm. where you know how somebody can get up an American Idol and sing like crap and then mm -hmm. walk off and go, wasn't that great? Yeah. Well, that's actually a psychological process that, right. that puts people like that. It's a cognitive distortion. And it's essentially based on insufficient experience and training. They've never heard enough good singing. They haven't heard tapes of them singing. And so many millennials today have access to all this information, mm -hmm. so it makes them feel like they're expert in everything or have access to everything, but because they have no formal training in anything, they really don't know anything. Mm -hmm. yeah. And so they have this sort of Dunning-Kruger phenomenon where they feel like an expert, but there's a, there's a deep lacking in the yeah. ability to... And do you to... think that comes early on? Because, I mean, that's something that, I mean, like, when you, we kind of talked about in the beginning, or maybe even off off the record before we even started, was, like, you know, this immigrant parents and kind of this divide with, like, the, their, their generation versus yeah. the generation of now, which is, you know, find something that you're passionate in, but also, like, there is, you know, opportunity in, like, being a lawyer, being a doctor, and just stick to it. Yeah, I versus, mean, I, yeah. Think, I think, well, but yeah, their thing would be stick to it. My yeah. thing would be... Just have a backup. <laughs> have, no, have absolutely. A, have a sort of something there that yeah. that sort of of substance that backs you up. My question is like, when do you and do you ever kind of just focus on that thing, like to be the best you can be at that, or is that even like has that time changed for me? Opinion? No, just just in oh general. oh, I think there are plenty of people that just still do that. I mean, you want to yeah. be the best surgeon, the best whatever, and you got to be into that though. I think the good news is about millennials is that they they don't want to do it unless they're really into it. Yeah, right. and that's that's a healthy thing. Uh -huh. uh, my generation would done it just to do it because that's what you had to do it in order yeah, to succeed and so and it would have its own satisfaction associated with being expert and good and helping people and stuff and that's the other part that people miss you know the the you know the whole happiness movement is moving towards what's called eudaimonic happiness which is meaning making in life mm -hmm. having a good life and all that literature shows very clearly that making meaning involves having something to offer other people and doing things for the people often in a one-on-one -on -one scale and that you know, Aristotle wrote about that, and he said, in order for that to work, you have to have something called phrenesis, which is wisdom, and two is, is technique, technical skill. Mm -hmm. And I think he's absolutely right. You got to have experience and skill, and hey, and then you can help somebody, and then yeah. then that's fulfilling, and then you'll have a meaningful life. And just I don't know, obviously, the scientific technical terminology, but just from what you just said, it just seems as though millennials versus the generation before them. The big difference, and I think we mentioned it again earlier, was this instant gratification thing. Like, we want success now. Well, it's here's what I've observed. And, and by the way, the, another piece of the you know the generational differences is previous generations looked at, is this a financially viable task? Yeah. And you guys just look at, do I want to do this? I'm not yeah. sure. There should be a little bit of hybrid of that. Right. Yeah, there should be. That'd be my advice. 
Um, Otherwise, none of us would make money. <laughs> that's right. And you're going to be, that, that's Three what the times. parents are complaining right. about. Yeah. So well, I'm sorry, what you asked me, I, I lost track of it. About the instant gratification okay. and the fact that. So you know, what I've observed is that millennials are very hardworking. That, that, that idea that they are lazy is just flat out wrong. Mm -hmm. They're impatient. Right. It's like, hey, I'm putting my time in. I'm going, going to work with my lights on. I'm coming home with my lights on. And now it's time for me to be a vice president. It's time. <laughs> it's like, it's like, yeah. we dude, you've been there for eight months. Yeah. It's like, yeah, I've been working my ass off. Some, yeah. I mean, like financial institutions now, I'm sure you know, like, yeah. if like a, an entry level job is like vice president. Yeah. Because, and that's what it's called. It's, it's just the role. Yeah. The name yeah. Of the role. And that's because I looked the I other day on LinkedIn that. and a friend of mine who's like a year or two younger oh, than me God. is the vice president, like Chase or Bank of America or something. And I'm looking like, okay, first of all, I know this guy. He's not that intelligent to be the vice president of anything, uh. nonetheless, a financial institution. And then I read somewhere a day after that. That a lot of these financial institutions are just giving them these. I like roles it. I like it. It makes just perfect to sense. satisfy them makes, like mentally. It's like great inflation. You know? It's perfect. So, so I was like, okay, that's interesting. But so you know, you said something about the marriage of kind of doing what you love and doing what you want yeah. and making money. You know, yeah. I really do think, and from the conversations that we've had, you know, with our friends and our colleagues, that that's an issue. You know, because what we want to do is very hard to monetize. Like you know, yeah. for example, this podcast. You know, we've been doing this for almost a year now, and you know. In the beginning, we didn't even have a plan to monetize. We were just like, we just want to do this because we That's love good. it. We have our other, you know, we have other jobs that we do. That's during good. The day. Um, but then it becomes a problem because it takes these things take over your life. You right. Know? I prefer doing this. Yes. Than anything yeah. else. Right. Don't stop. Yeah. But but there, the question, and I can't answer this. Of course. When do you when do you give up? Right. When is it a hobby and not a not a financially viable right. project? I I don't know the answer of to that. I, I don't know. But like you said keep doing it and mm -hmm. you know you'll interview interesting people yeah. and something yeah. else will come out of it and mm -hmm. who knows what so how do you balance this crazy schedule that apparently you've always had since you were a resident well true i've always had some since i'm a resident but but it really got crazy for a while yeah. and and everything has been a vacation since i mean so. it's i look what we're doing i'm sitting in my house <laughs> talking to people this is not work this is yeah. everything compared to seeing 60 patients a day and doing five consults that was insane uh-huh and everything else just been easy ever since. So why just, did you, I mean, just kind of go thinking back to how your mindset was at the time and maybe still is now, like why did you decide to take on that much work? I, I bought into this. My dad was a doctor and he was always sort of available for his patients and they, he came from a different era that I wanted to try to maintain. So I was like, I'm going to be the best and the most available 100% of the time. For, you know, I just was just, I, I developed this, well, I had a perfectionism. I had to be mm -hmm. the perfect doctor all the time and I was so invested in it. It was my being was invested in it. And it's something to do with my heritage and my relationship with my dad or something. It was not good. Mm -hmm. uh, and I went to therapy. And the therapy helped me sort of start delegating and relegating stuff. Yeah. And so but was like was there something you were trying to prove or I don't it, I don't know. You know I, I because because it has it was so rewarding, I think I was sort of binging on that feedback too. Because mm -hmm. I I have super low self esteem, right? And so that sort of having something to offer and, and it gets, you, you know, part of the making meaning happiness literature, I never hear anybody talk about, which is overdoing it, which me, I overdid it. I, it was so meaningful to me. I killed myself doing mm -hmm. it. And I, I you know, it's well, workaholic. I mean, clearly it's paid therapy. off. So. Therapy, therapy, therapy. Do what and you have I, to do. It. And I guess this is a good transition into more like mental health yeah. uh, and, you know, you said you were dealing with 60 patients a day and you I'm sure the conversations and the things that you guys were talking about and you were seeing were not easy to, you know, take in. 
how did you deal with it? You know, as a, you know, as their physician, how did you deal with your own mental health? I didn't. And so when you're a workaholic, you're sort of getting high off the workaholism, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it made me feel good to be doing what I was doing all the time. Kind of keeps you busy so you don't think about it too much, right? I was happy doing what I was doing. Yeah. I was just overdoing it. Eventually, I kind of burned out a bit. But but thankfully, I was able to, before I really burned out, I was able to kind of pull back a little bit. So but, uh, so is that, I mean, when did you, when you realized it, what did you do? I, I didn't realize it until I was out of it, I don't think. I mean, this, uh, this is all looking back, yeah, thinking yeah. about it. At the time, I was just working my ass off. Yeah. Know? I thought it was what I was supposed to do. I, I bought into that. There was a real thing about not sleeping and being available and running in in the middle of the night and swashbuckling. And, mm-hmm. you know, I, I bought into that. That's what I wanted to be. I wanted to do that. I wanted to, you know, run in for the emergencies and things. So, so looking back, is there anything you would have done differently? See, I don't think so. Yeah. That that because I it, it's what positioned me to do all the other things I've done, yeah. and and I, and because I saw so much pathology, I've seen everything. There's yeah. nothing I haven't seen or dealt with, mm-hmm. which is a really unusual experience for an internist. That and it wasn't just on the medicine side; it was also on the psychiatric side. Mm-hmm. So I had this extremely broad experience and intense experience that has carried me ever since. I mean, it was it was twenty you know twenty years of a broad yeah. experience and throughout this time i know you know you um kind of outside of work like go to the gym and you're yeah you know, i tried to that. Guy, well, so, for a while there i wasn't I yeah so the, i mean that's the thing like for like people who are like extremely busy like sometimes yeah. you just like you don't you don't pay attention to I, your, men, you, your probably personal 10 health. years i didn't do it yeah so like i know i mean i'm the same way like i i, I make a an effort to go to the gym every yeah. single day but sometimes when i'm really busy like it really hurts me deep i know down. well that's right but, but like but how I, did I, it, it, it yeah just, i i was so busy i forget I wouldn't say I forgot about it. It just got washed under. It just, yeah. just like a wave, just like this wave blew over it. Uh-huh. And I always thought I'd always work out. I've worked out since I was 14. Yeah. I've always done that. I was just, I enjoy it. I'd, now it's, I mean, you'd like prioritize it over like many other things that you, yeah, might, you now should it's like, be prioritizing. Yeah, now it's like my meditation. It's right. really important to me. Yeah. And I see Rafi at the gym at like 6 a.m. too. See? I know he prioritizes Even it. Rafi, see? Yeah. <laughs> so, Dr. Drew, I know for me, and being, you know, Armenian, and we'll bring it up again since you kind of started this thing. <laughs> um, you know, mental health and depression, anxiety, suicide, yeah. it's all like, it just means that that person's stupid is what we grew up knowing. Really? Like, oh, you know, oh. and in Armenian, they say like, abushe or like, you know, like just there's something wrong with that person. Um, and mm. so we were we were raised with kind of that uh, mentality. And so I don't want to speak for the general population, but. That's an immigrant thing. Right. That's like yeah. an immigrant thing. Yeah. So. For me, it became more real when I think it was a few years ago at this point, one of my close friends, you know, committed suicide. And, you know, once I was kind of, you know, reflecting myself and I still think about it now, it's like, you know, how does that happen? Um, You know, it became real to me. And it was an issue that I was like, I need to start thinking about more for myself, you know, my mental health, more so than just my physical health, but also for the mental health of others. And, you know, we've seen it this past, you know, year, like, you know, whether it's the Kate Spades or the Anthony Bourdain's and people that we think had all like everything you know yeah years before that amy winehouse one of the greatest of all time if you ask me right and you think that they have it all these people are successful and you can you know i guess the question i'm leading to is how do you even spot these issues well let's, let's just uh, let's just first dispel the idea that because people have everything they don't get mental illness would you be surprised if they had an infection or yes. a heart attack? Uh, no, I wouldn't be surprised. Right? Or psoriasis? Yeah, 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 yeah. It, they yeah. have brains, and their brains get sick, just like right. any other body part. Right. It's just the way it is. That we we're all genetically set up with what we got, and the environment interaction with the genes up in our head 
determine something. And uh, mental illness is exceedingly common. It's over 50% of the American population will have a major mental illness in their mm-hmm. lifetime, just the way they'll have cancer and vascular disease and anything else. So is that something that I mean, folks maybe listening, just anyone in general, could uh, kind of keep in their mind to like engage in some sort of like self-care well, yeah, like we were just, just discussing, you know, don't do what I did. <laughs> that was that yeah. was luckily I survived all that without any major consequences. But you know, working out regularly, spending enough time with family, being of service, listening to some music, you know, recreating properly, balance. Balance is of course the thing. But but you you were asking how to spot it, yeah. and, and you know, I mean, it's not easy to spot depending on what the condition is, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and know that, you know, if you not sleeping, change in appetite, change in hygiene, mm-hmm. the thinking worthlessness or self-harm or disturb, more disturbed mm-hmm. thinking and delusional thought. I mean, these are all brain signs. Right. Yeah. And I just kind of want to delve a little deeper because, you know, when these celebrity deaths and suicides happen, people like, you know, start talking about it, but there's a lot more happening every day with just the regular people. Um, you know, you want us to focus on suicide. On suicide, right? Okay. And I mean, or what leads to suicide as well? Because you well, know, people lots of things. Right, right. It's but not I meant, one thing. I meant more so. People always say, "Oh, you know, talk to your friend. Like, tell them you love them. All this stuff." But people that are going through that, they don't want to talk about it. Right. You know. So, I guess, and again, like, I don't want to push too far. But what can you know, folks like us, you know, you know, people's friends do? to you know perhaps get these people to talk or just share or be more open or i don't really know well that might not do anything Uh, i mean are you when they're actively suicidal are you talking about or when they're just depressed fringe even perhaps yeah i mean if somebody does is you know complaining about chronic unhappiness and sadness yeah get them into the professional i mean there's to to be withholding treatment to me is as bizarre as if you know they're infected gangrene in their finger mm-hmm. and you went oh i don't need the doctor mm-hmm. that's insane to me it's a pride thing it's weird mm-hmm. I, I went to therapy for 11 years and i went because my workaholism and my anxiety and do you, you know, recommend people to go to therapy depending on what the condition is yeah, yeah. i mean i mean just get treatment treatment works that's the thing it really works and why would you withhold that from somebody if they're miserable or suffering yeah. or having any symptomatology that's disturbing? So looking back, besides the fact that you're a workaholic and you, yeah. you worked your ass off, um, was there anything else that you think you did um, or maybe it was a mindset thing that set you apart from someone else who might be studying you know, psychology and mental health and wanting to go down that profession? I don't know. I, I It's hard for me to... Say, I, I know that I was really good on my feet, and, and I'm really good at thinking on my feet. And and I noticed some of my peers sometimes, you know, could do the, the tests well, great, maybe right. better than me, but good didn't seem stickers. to be able to process in a holistic way. I mean, yeah. I could walk, I can walk in a room and I'll, I, I'll know what's going on immediately. I just smell it. I just, my, that part of my brain is very good at sort of taking lots of different pieces of information and, and holistically assessing it. And coming up with a, uh, you know, a spectrum of possibilities. Like mm-hmm. immediate, I just know it immediately. It all, it all just comes to me, and I have to pay careful attention. I have to listen very carefully. But as I do, it literally will just come to me. Mm-hmm. And I guess. That's and were you scary. always like that? I, mean, I, I, yeah. I, on my feet, I was good. Yeah, yeah. I, I was always good on my feet. Uh, I had great training as an undergraduate in at Amherst College. Mm-hmm. Uh, that the analytical thinking, problem solving, proper reading, listening in lecture halls and stuff. I mean, I had great undergraduate training. And I think that's kind of set me up mm-hmm. so because the first two years of medical school were like a big language class. I thought they were, pathet- yeah. I thought it was pathetic. Yeah. Just, just cramming a bunch of information in your head and regurgitating it to me was like, I, that's not 
yeah. education. I, right. I, it's like learning a language. Mm-hmm. Not not even learning a language. It's learning the vocabulary of a language, yeah. and the application is like completely left out. Uh, so I was doing a lot of thinking as we were learning it, and then when I hit the wards, I was able to apply it pretty well. Yeah, I know. I know something that you said publicly before too is like how you've always wanted to kind of stay relevant to young people and, and kind of like this whole pop culture movement. And uh, I, I guess I something. did. I, I did. I, yeah. I maybe because I'm getting older, giving up a little bit on that, but because mostly it's because young people are the repository of the future. I mean, they're the resource of the future, and their direction gets set in adolescence, young adulthood. And, and I and I could see these trajectories going in the wrong direction. I yeah. want to help them with their trajectory. So I think my question is, like, um, how do you do that? Like, is there, I mean, is it how like do you a matter relevant? Of, yeah. Like, how, how do you do that? I guess personally. I, I've been on MTV continuously since 1996. <laughs> I mean, yeah. I just I go where they are, yeah. bottom line. And, yeah. and be here's what I do do that's different. I'm, I'm willing to insert myself in projects that are uncomfortable. Because I, I understand that the TV producers and networks know how to capture eyes. That's their job. Mm-hmm. My job is to get in, insert myself into those vehicles and then try to push information out or give people what they need once I've found a position for my, like Teen Mom's a good example of that. Mm-hmm. Like, like I knew that would work. I knew it, I knew mm-hmm. it, I knew it. And so I was delighted to be a part of it and just get involved with it and figure out how I could use it to... Keep, you know, make corral it and put information in there and make good use of it. But I knew it would work. And you, I mean, you're doing a bunch of shows. I mean, you have a bunch of podcasts now. Um, as far as, you know, your media career goes and the future of media and, you know, reality yeah. television, where do you see it going? Because I know you I have no idea. Really? I have no idea. I, I, it's, I, I am presently pitching like five different shows and, and I don't understand the ones that they turned out. I don't understand why they're turning them down. They seem like the right direction to me. Yeah. You know, and it's just, I don't know. Do, are, are, do you see podcasts as, you know, the future of radio? No. Or the future of media? No. I, I think I think we've just added another medium. Uh, mm-hmm. I, I think that the audience, I think bro- broadcast will always be there. The, mm-hmm. the power of mass media has not been replicated by any narrow cast on the internet. It just mm-hmm. hasn't. Mm-hmm. Um, so so br- true broadcast, or cable at least, will always have a place and it will always be in a superior position to some of these siloed audience mm-hmm. delivery uh, mechanisms. But they are important to you know to attract an audience for some of the siloed products. Mm-hmm. Um, radio, you know, people predicted AM would die when FM came around. Mm-hmm. People, FM was going to die when podcasting came around or mm-hmm. Pandora came around. None of that's true. Right. They just, it just sort of... Cut into the market share a little yeah, bit. Yeah, it just diversifies the audience. It just fragments so the audience. as the space, more. I guess, gets more saturated, um, what are your thoughts on... I know uh, in the past, you've kind of had your thoughts on like just media in general and how they can distort things. Yeah, and, you know, I'm say, interested yeah. in the media doing good. So what, what yeah, so like, I guess what advice like would you give to... Yeah, people How's like... That? Yeah, I mean, just like fake I news mean, and all this stuff. Oh, yeah. Here, yeah, uh, media's been very media destructive. Well, I, I, my naive idea when I started was looking at radio and all the pathology it had brought, which yeah. was sex, drugs, and rock and roll. And I was like, man, I'm seeing all this in the psych hospital. This the Radio and rock has been a very problematic influence. Maybe if I got involved with those media, I could shift it and make it a you know force for good. Yeah. And so that's always been my sort of paradigm. That's mm-hmm. been the model. And I, I don't, again, I don't know. I mean, I'm trying to <laughs> pitch documentaries to Netflix and things. Yeah. I, I've got reality show ideas, but I don't know if any of them will go.
So, Dr. Drew, I know that you have done so much stuff. I mean, you're a wise person, you know. What What's next for you? I mean, or I have you know, no idea. And, and But what's your purpose? I mean, like, my you, you have is, a purpose for my sure. My purpose is to make a difference. Right. Okay. That's my purpose. But Very what's, simple. I mean, just kind of digging a little do, deeper. Do good. Do good, make a difference. And it, that's and, what, that's and, what satisfies you? Yeah, it does. It really does. Uh, uh, let me, let me see if I can parse it out any more than that. This um, is the legal training coming in. I mean, I really want to get to the root of it. <laughs> yeah, sure. I get it. Uh, <laughs> uh, I enjoy people. I enjoy sort of performing. Like, like right now, one of the things I'm really focused on is public speaking. I yeah. really enjoy public speaking. Yeah. I, I like dealing with audiences and groups of people. Mm-hmm. I just enjoy it. Um, so it's that it's some satisfaction of being working with audiences, mm-hmm. um, giving information that I think is important, and then create. And there's a creative element in it right, too, right. which I'm trying to create stuff that will sell to a network and do good and be right. fun to make. That that is pretty much it. That all sounds really appealing to me as I describe that, it. That answer I think was better than to do good. Yeah, well, do good is the do good is the headline. It's the headline. Yeah, right. but that's it's the chapter eleven of like. The yeah, book. but it's yeah. <laughs> or chapter twelve. Let's, chapter eleven. Well, bad. but I just do good, have fun, right. create. Right. All those things are deep impulses. Uh-huh. So, so when you decide like what you're going to be doing next, or like when something comes your way, and obviously you create those opportunities for yourself, but like I, I overall. Um, what is like the lens that you look at it? And I guess a better question would be like, what are your maybe like top three values that you need to stick to no matter what you do? Well, do no harm, mm-hmm. right? That, as a that's a great book also, by the way. I'm sure you've read it. No. First, do no harm. Yeah. Well, yeah. yeah. Well, that's that's the credo that we were <laughs> yeah. raised on as physicians. Uh, and, you know, make a difference, right? Um, as you, and as you were saying that, uh, you were asking, you know, what the, the lens is. Yeah. I, when I'm offered things, I, I, my first impulse is, is, what can I do with this? Is mm-hmm. there something I can make of this? And and uh, I remember once, <laughs> this was sort of the, we call it the Dunkin' Donuts episode <laughs> or model. <laughs> Dunkin' Donuts came to me and they wanted me to do a commercial or sort of a, a media campaign, like, an, like a one-day satellite tour for them about their new coffee drink. And it was going to be, it was going to, <laughs> it was going to, um, I don't know, summer romances and coffee. And I was like, no, thank you. <laughs> I'm not yeah. interested. But I said, you know what, though? This was like 10, 12 years ago. And I said, there's all this data about coffee and caffeine that people are not publicizing. I would happily climb into their satellite booth and talk about the benefits of caffeine and Alzheimer's and Parkinson's, things like that. And, oh, by the way, they have a drink and f- they sent me here and so fun. Yeah. I did it. And I, that, that worked for me. Mm-hmm. I was like educating about right. caffeine and they got their drink in there, whatever. Yeah. But I got a chance to access people and talk about the campaign. I'm glad you bring that up because that's something that we've seen a lot now too with just the whole like media space in general or and just like marketing. Um, yeah. Whatever branding marketing is like, you know, that kind of shove it in your face model doesn't work anymore. No. It's like, it's kind of like, you know, it's they, people, they've coined it like content marketing, which is yeah. you give them value and then you kind of like, you know, the plug is like you don't really have to necessarily say it directly. It's like indirectly you're, you're advertising. Uh, on it, the other so. hand, uh, this, this this is funny. Where I'm, this is an interesting conversation to me because you know Sam Harris is? He has that Waking Up podcast, and he wants mm-hmm. to put it all behind a paywall, and he mm-hmm. wants to not use ads because he's fearful yep. that he's going to be judged as somehow... Um, in- endorsing it. Endorsing or, or not yeah. as trustworthy because he's endorsing some product that he doesn't really believe in. And when he said that, I was like, hey, that makes me angry. Mm-hmm. Because I, as a consumer, I know it's Sam. I know he's yeah, just exactly. reading an ad. It's, he's reading it so I can get this thing for free. Yeah. And I appreciate that he does it. Doesn't, it doesn't in any way affect 
what I think of him. Now, he's getting into territory about racism and things like that, where I think he's now in a point where he can't get sponsors. Yeah, so I think that's part gonna, of the deal. Yeah. And, and okay, I get that. It's a good PR but, spin. But no, yeah. but I was like, hey, hey, don't like, read the damn ad. I'm a consumer. I understand right. what it means when you read an ad. And yeah. by the way, and, and let me decide if I want to listen to the ad or let me decide yeah. if I want to hear about that product. Maybe I do. Mm-hmm. You know, but just to go, oh, no, I, I can't be. D- d- uh, sullied by the, you know, the that, that kind of made me angry. It did. I mean, I, I think we're all we are all very skilled consumers. Yeah, we well, and, and we, and, well yeah. but if we wanted, and if we want to consume for, for right. free, we understand mm-hmm. people have to do things to get us those free products. I think yeah. it's the combination, of, and, you, and you touched upon it, it's the combination of how do you provide education and, and entertainment, and if you can well, combine that's mar- those, that's two always together. the that's always right. the conundrum in media. And, and have, again, like you know, when I was saying earlier about the educational system. People like in our generation, the millennial, millennial generation, and those that are coming after us. I mean, my two-year-old cousin knows how to use an iPad. Yeah. You know, these these kids are growing up with technology. Oh yeah. Whereas for us, like we were kind of on the kind of on the fringe of like, oh, here it know, comes. Right. It came in. And so we're, but the new language is going to be English and coding. Like, yeah. You know, that's going to it's going to be like English as a second language, perhaps, and coding <laughs> is going to be number one. Right. Weird. So you know, times are changing. I think it's I think it's important to stay. You know in touch with your surroundings and keep updated with technology and everything else. Um, speaking of keeping up to date, I know that your Instagram profile is you in a Dodgers jersey. So what are your uh, what are your thoughts on the Dodgers in this upcoming season? Well, I, first of all, I had to like think about it like it is. It's me in a Dodgers jersey. <laughs> oh, yeah. sure of that? Is that my Instagram? Is it yours? Well, I do. I sang There the, is a Dodgers jersey I, in that I, Instagram profile. I, hang on. I sang the uh, national anthem for the. Oh yeah, I'm in the Dodgers uniform. Uh, I sang the national anthem maybe, maybe for the Dodgers. For you you sang the national anthem for the Dodgers. Yeah, and and the Kings. I've done that a few times. When was that? I've blessed several times. Last three, okay. two, okay. two years. Good to know. Very fun. Very fun. I'm uh, sure it is. The, the, and uh, is that is that on like is that on YouTube or something? I gotta I gotta watch the that Kings show. one. Is <laughs> I can probably give you that. That's it, and that's way more intense than Dodger Stadium. You don't think about it. Oh, it's yeah. the same organist. Yeah. Staples Center. Yeah. Same organist in both places. Right. Dieter. And uh, and in Dodger Stadium, you stand at home play. You look into the outfield bleachers because that's. You have no idea if anybody's behind you. Because they're yeah. eating their all-you-can-eat dogs or whatever. Yeah. The, the, yeah. Is there. The, yeah. the flag is way out yeah. there between the two jumbostrons. Yeah. And you have the ear things in, so you, you know, so you're hearing your voice. And you, it's like you're in an isolation booth. The Kings game is in – that is like – you've been to a Kings game? Yeah. yeah. Lasers and oh, spotlights yep. and the, yep. both teams are flying yep. around yep. you at yeah. 75 miles it's an hour. Cold. And then kaboom, the spotlight comes on you. And you can feel people breathing on you yeah. from the sides. It's intense. <laughs> And so that uh, freaks me out every time. Yeah. And that, but it's fun. It's, it's how did uh, that even come about? I mean, did someone know like you sang on well, the side? Well, yes. And so here's how it came about: is uh, my I have an AM radio show right now. I do every day on, on uh, KGO in San Francisco and KBC in Los Angeles. And they were the home of the Kings. Mm. And my program director went, "You can sing. We'll have you sing the night. It'll be a great promotion." Signed you up without telling you. And then right. <laughs> and then when I did it. I was like, oh, free seats, free food. Oh, yeah. wonder what the Dodgers are up to. <laughs> what if I could, if I could go, <laughs> yeah. go do sing for them? Next thing you know, Dr. Drew just launches his own album. And oh, I would happily do, do this season, too. <laughs> well, yeah, and, and wait till the Rams get going. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm going to hang around that stadium. Um, but I, I just, it's really fun. It's so, very so, fun. So, talk about, it. it's it's like a um, an insurmountable task a little bit. Yeah, it's, yeah. Like, it's a big task. You've never done it. Very nerve wracking. To your point on putting yourself it. in uncomfortable situations. Yeah, you got to yeah. push yourself a little bit. That, so the Dodgers, you think are going to be successful? 
Uh, I'm not sure about this season. I thought for sure, and yeah. now I'm not sure. Yeah, and I'm I'm a postseason fan. I get involved yeah, deeply in the postseason. Yeah. So. I think we just watched the Houston Astros Dodgers series last yeah, year. And that yeah, was yeah. It. me too. Like, we're like we don't even know who other yeah. teams are. Uh, but uh, and you somehow yeah. at the time, you know, like you know all the players, you know everything about them, and <laughs> yeah. then like two months later, you forget all. Gone. The names. <laughs> I, I'm, I'm bad. I'm, I'm really an LA fan. But um, I, it, as it pertains to insurmountable task, I really think that's an important experience for people. Uh, not everyone gets to have that experience, and, and I had it when I, um, after I described to you screwing around in college for a couple yeah. years, when I got back and it was time to get busy mm-hmm. and do my pre-med training, that looked like an, I, I just had a, literally an image in my head of a wall that went to infinity, and I just had to climb the wall. And I just remember thinking, all right, just one one brick at a time, just start putting my pegs in the wall, and I, I'm just going to start climbing. I'm not even going to look at the top, I'm just going to keep climbing. And all of a sudden, I was climbing over that wall a couple of years later. I couldn't couldn't believe it. Mm-hmm. And it was super intense and super competitive and crazy making because I, you know, you don't know you, your grades meant everything back then in terms of medical yeah. school admissions. And the more competitive it gets, the more it does. Yeah. Extremely unpleasant time. It was mm-hmm. not easy, um, but important. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's funny. My sons have had similar experiences, mm-hmm. you know, sort of with insurmountable tasks, and both of them will mm-hmm. talk about it. And you, you can't predict where they're going to occur or, or how, but it's important to let kids go through impossible tasks. That's really where their sense of self-confidence, the willing to stick in with problem solvings and grit really comes from. Mm-hmm. And doctor, I know that you enjoy traveling. Are there any recommendations that you would give to millennials like us to, and I hate calling ourselves that, but that's what we are. Where to go to travel? Yeah, where to go to travel. Because I mean, that's something that, you know, Pat and I always are talking about it's like you know how do we find the time because we're always hustling always doing so many things and, see yeah. i like and traveling point, and working so, yeah yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. You're well, i think more. that's probably gonna end up being the case for us <laughs> yeah too. so i and sorry I, to go job but to your point on what you had said before i think is really important here too is no no not even that it's just like you had mentioned it earlier on but it was about this kind of concept of like exposure mm-hmm. and like being exposed to things to yeah, know right. if you're gonna be you know yeah, yeah. good at it so i think like yeah. traveling traveling is part of that yeah part of it but i like traveling to places where i have purpose like i'm doing something yeah and yeah. that's where you meet interesting people and you get, you feel like, you know, you don't feel lost. You feel, yeah. I, I'm shy. I tell you, I'm shy. I have low self-esteem. And so for me just to go somewhere and meet, impossible. That's a talk about insurmountable task. Yeah. No way. Uh, and now it's weird because I, because the people are recognize me and I don't, I don't know who yeah, are you? Yeah. It's, it's weird for me. Um, but to go and like give a talk or go and have a meet, go to a meeting and, you know, that, or, uh, to me, that's great. I, I can't get enough mm-hmm. of that. Uh, and I just think our great country, man, you can't see enough of it. I, right? I, 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 yes, right. It's so underrated. It's so great. The cities are so great. There's so much. The people are so great. What are a few of your favorite cities? Chicago and New York. Really? Wow. I mean, Chicago is a great city if you have a chance to spend any time there. And yeah. then New York, I spent a lot of time yeah. there. I, I really, I'm actually, I'm actually, I had a weird realization about um, two months ago. I was, that you might move there? Well, no, I, I have <laughs> had that thought for a while. But, but, I woke. We have a. We're there a lot, yeah. and I woke up. Uh, I was doing a Teen Mom episode, and I was being driven down downtown to go do that. And I was looking this year. I'm like, oh my god, what is this feeling? I was like, oh, I, I'm actually, I'm actually physically in love with this city. I'm having, I'm in love with it. It's crazy. Yeah. Is it I just like, a fast paced environment? I just or what love is everything it? about it. Yeah. I just, I love every corner, every architectural building i look at it just i'm in love with it it's just there it's just you you're out you wherever you walk out you're in it you're yeah. it's something crazy going on you know, it's, and it's funny you say that because now that i think about it for me that happened in of all places providence rhode island 
Interesting. Were you, did you go to Brown or something? Or did you? Did, did I go to what? Brown? No. <laughs> I, no. I wish I went to Brown. No, we went to Boston for a family like trip, and my oh, yeah. my dad knew a friend from Providence, so we ended up driving down there. And I mean, just I'm not a chill person by any means, but I liked the chill. Something about yeah, it. Yeah, it was just so, the, yeah. there was just culture. Yeah, like, yeah. Compared to the West Coast, oh, the East yeah. Coast just has. And I'm a Patriots fan, so I was there for probably a Patriots game, and I just love the culture. The people are just completely different. Yeah. I mean, and I'm a, I'm a people person like yourself, so I like, but I like talking to people. I like meeting new people, and it was just it's so different out there, you know, the seafood and the fresh air and just just everything. And I was there for like two days, and I was like, I love this place. I don't know if I gotta live there, but like in this moment, I love it. Isn't it a crazy feeling? Yeah, and I'm never feeling about, about a Glendale place or LA. Yeah. yeah, it's a weird thing to feel yeah. about a place. And yeah. I was like, well, that's that. And then Chicago, I could I could. I feel like romantically inclined towards. <laughs> it's, like, it's such a great town. It yeah, really is. I've, I've, people I, I are so there. Midwest. The people are so, like so nice. It's out of yeah. control and so industrious and yes. really really cool. Yeah. Um, I, I'm still preoccupied with your question about the the lowest point. Yeah. Uh, oh, okay. Yeah. Huh. Uh, and I was just thinking about something that happened to me that was mind boggling, and it, and, it, and it's not so unusual today in the area of social media and, and mob behavior on social media. Mm. So uh, in 1997, uh, so I just finished Love Line. I was a novice at media. A pharmaceutical company hired me to go out and give a talk, give a series of talks on the side effects of antidepressants. And I was like, I'm in because all I was hearing about on radio was people's relationships being destroyed by the sexual side effects of antidepressants and the companies were denying it. Mm. And I was like, and this was a company at that time. It was, uh, I think Burroughs Welcome or something. Yeah. And they had a medicine, an antidepressant that didn't have that side effects. Of course, they were interested in advocating for that. I was like, I don't find whatever. It was a non-branded campaign. I almost never had to mention their their product, it, it, the product was only mentioned like in anything. And when I'm ever I'm out uh, on behalf of anybody, mm-hmm. I have to be able to call it like I see it. Mm-hmm. And so we were giving these lectures, and I would occasionally do like some radio shows promoting the lectures in the town I went into. And it's 1998 now. This is like a two year campaign. I was with a bunch of psychiatrists and gynecologists, and we were I thought we were doing a great. We wrote a book about it. It was this really great campaign. And evidently, in one city, I don't even know where, um, I was got an interview, and the guy said, "Well, these sexual side effects. What do you do with your patients if if this happens?" And they and I said, well, "What do I do with my patients?" And I'm entitled. I'm absolutely entitled to answer this question. Right. Mm-hmm. I said, "My patients. What I do is I either switch them to Serazone, Remeron, or Wellbutrin, or sometimes I'll add Wellbutrin. Well, adding Wellbutrin is an off-label maneuver mm-hmm. that, that I used to do." Mm-hmm. But because I accepted money from that company, mm. and I just, for whatever reason, I I didn't say. Oh, and by the way, I'm being represented. I work for that company and do some things. Yeah, I got then twenty years later, or eighteen years later, got put into a four billion dollar suit oh. from the federal government, suing now, which was now three companies later that been bought and bought wow. and bought. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The wow. company I worked for was three companies yeah. down the line. When they were doing due diligence or some bullshit. They found this, and I got wrapped into this $4 billion lawsuit for this company that apparently had a practice of pushing doctors to, for off-label use of medicine. I got vilified as this dude who's a who's a um, shill for pharmaceutical companies, and all you're doing is pushing meds, and you take money from the evil empire. Now, 
that was 20 years ago when it was a very different world yeah. that doctors and pharmaceutical companies kind of worked together yeah. just to, yeah. and now i no way i would take my pharmaceutical company i understand that this is not okay right now and it's been uh, to this day you'll yeah. see stuff on it's, my social it's media crazy because back then it's like you know it's like a spur of the moment thing and you just don't like in a way like you know you don't well, realize when i was it. answering the question yeah and I like, and like now I with social media you can come out and like but, put a but statement people don't even like, know what i was in the suit for yeah they somehow think that somehow it was a doctor <laughs> taking money from drug companies no i was yeah. paid to go out and spend my year giving lectures and things yeah. And and it had nothing to do with taking money from the drug company. It was I forgot. It was mentioning an off-label use and forgetting to say that that company right. I worked well, for. Well, that story's not sexy. That's I, they, why, people that's don't why, understand yeah. it. Well, they don't understand. And that's it. why this All whole the, fake news phenomenon and bullshit is total fake news because. People just want sexy. Like all the the real stuff isn't sexy. You know what they the want? struggles aren't sexy. They want outrage. Yeah, that's all. It's they, not yeah, outrageous. Exactly. What I did was not outrageous. Right. But how can I get outraged over that? Right. I want to be outraged. Yeah. And right. and outrage is the currency of the day. And mm-hmm. the, the outrage and envy and those are two extremely destructive mm-hmm. emotions. Mm-hmm. That that is the, the that fact is the thing that scares me most about what's going on today. Yeah. Uh, with outrage and envy, you can't have discourse. Without discourse, you can't evolve. You can't change your mind i i want my mind changed all the time yeah. so it's concerning anyway that was bugging me <laughs> no no yeah I'm that was a low that point up. and i was, that was what i was saying point. was like now with social media you could at least come out and issue a statement or something no, but no, even then like it no, still doesn't, doesn't do the doesn't yeah, matter they, they, they've you know, decided they what still, that is yeah. and it was in the early days of twitter and yeah. this was when mm-hmm. this came out i guess like four or five years ago something like that uh-huh, uh-huh. so so it was from 1997 to maybe 15, 14 maybe probably came out. So a seventeen year difference there. And right. and still people were just going nuts. Wow. And and boy, the articles that were written, talk about fake news. It was unbelievable. It was really unbelievable. Yeah. That's not, and, it's not uh, like it's gotten any better these days, which is well, I, when you're the object worse. when yeah. you're the object of it, you realize how bad fake news is. Yeah. So Yeah. Well, Dr. You guys Drew, running out of steam? Is that oh, it? No, no, you no. can't go for another hour? We can go. We can go. I was just about to say, I can go on and on and on. I mean, all I do is talk, but you know, obviously we respect your time. And, well, I like, the, you know, I like your drilling. I like your pushing for an answer. I like that. I mean, I didn't want to be too pushy, but I no, think at the end pushy, of the day, that's how the day, you I think get... it's, right. I think it's important for listeners or just, but, but anybody else to really, no, even for news, no. question the source. Right. First of all, like, you, you listened, yes. you heard that the answer was superficial mm-hmm. and you wanted something more. Yeah. I should be able to deliver that. I, yeah. no, no problem with and that. I, and I hope, and, and that's the thing is I hope our listeners that are reading these tweets that are reading, you know, President Trump's bullshit that he puts out there, whatever, whoever it may be, even the yeah. people that you like. Yeah. Tr- I mean, I, I remember my dad probably told me years ago is trust, but verify, like, oh, yes. just, just fucking read it, pretend it's true, but then do a little bit of research. I mean, like whether you're a lawyer, doctor, businessman, whatever the hell you are, don't just take something for face value and then run with it based off something that somebody yeah. else told you. Yes. Try right. to do a little bit of due diligence, and, your yes. own research. And, and go to real experts. Re- real right. experts. Yeah. In Twitter terms for all the millennials, don't just retweet. Retweet with a quote of your own opinion. <laughs> opinion. Right. There you exactly. Exactly. <laughs> it's true. Yeah. Well, if there's anything else that you want to tell our listeners as far as you know, advice or guidance, wisdom, whatever it may be, um, here's your opportunity. Go to therapy. It's a good thing. <laughs> um, Any book recommendations? Oh, I got lots of them. What, what, what area? Maybe we want? can hit you up after and we could put well, a What, list what area are you thinking about? What do you? Let's stick to the mental health self care uh, topic. Mm. Yeah, that's too big. Have what? Give me, give me. Mm. Some, oh, yeah. now you're now you're drilling to me. Yeah. Uh, um, just yeah. personal kind of 
care and just because there's very few. What's like? I mean, if you can think of like one or two books that really have stood out to you that you. Well, one uh, in terms of dealing with narcissists is Mm -hmm. called "Why Is It Always About You." There's a lot of narcissism out there, and so it helps you deal with narcissists. Kanye West, you got to read that Um, book. Why is it always about you? Well, no, the people Um, that know Kanye West read that. And otherwise, (laughs) I like read a lot of biographies and things like that. A ton of stuff. I read presidential biographies. Strangely, those are my favorite. My favorite, and don't judge me, but it was (laughs) forty. It was forty-one by George. I think George W. Bush probably like didn't write it, but he ghost had a ghostwriter. I love. Just the president, senior President Bush's story, because he was just a, such an accomplished person. So I got to read that. I, I my yeah. my favorite was uh, Theodore Rex, Theodore, or the rise of Theodore Roosevelt. Okay. That that one, the rise yeah. of Theodore Roosevelt, yeah. and, and just so good. He was yeah. such a nut. He was so nutty. Yeah, yeah. it's why I don't get upset about Trump because Theodore Roosevelt, my by far my favorite president, maybe Lincoln. Yeah, he's my favorite. Yeah. And, and, and I've read like. 40 Lincoln biographies. I just, I, really, I go to the gym with a Teddy Roosevelt t shirt almost uh, like twice a okay, week. You gotta, I get dirty looks because read the rise of Theodore yeah, Roosevelt. Yeah. Uh, but he was a nut. He was a yeah. nut. He's narcissist, manic, impulsive. Sounds a lot like, oh my God. Same. Yeah. And, and so, so when I, when people start asking me to, you know, evaluate mental health or personality styles of presidents, I'm like, I, I don't know what's right for history. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, you don't. I, I, I just, that's not my field. I, I, that's in too broad right. a category to predict. It, they we're putting a human being in these positions. Right. That already is a dicey proposition. Well, I would argue that the psychology and the mental health of the president is not as important as the people of the nation because those are the people that are electing that person. Well, isn't that interesting? And really, what, what, what the present day tells us about more than anything else is ourselves. Mm-hmm. And we got to right. really look at things that right. way. And there's, when we complain about everything else, just take a good look at what we're all up to here and how mm-hmm. we consume things and how mm-hmm. we react to things. Yeah. It's about us, not more. That's we're, we're the collective. We're mm-hmm. in. And we're a little bit of a spiritual vacuum right now. We need to kind of work on things. Yeah. But um, I think the millennials are going to work their way through this in, in a surprising way. It's my, that's my deepest instinct. Mm-hmm. Because you guys do work hard and you are thinking about things and you are entrepreneurial. And and there's going to be opportunity. You you've not had opportunity. The right. the, the the economy has been flatter. Yeah, it's not been more negative, but flatter than any period in my life. And that that flatness has a it, it lacks a certain kind of dynamism and yeah. optimism. And it, it sidelined a lot of people. It didn't inspire a lot of people. And it's turning on right now. Mm-hmm. Right. And and you guys are all on the on the sidelines, or or maybe just you know getting in the game. And you will be in a position yeah. to take full advantage. I think what's of happening really is it's eradicating that notion of like you can't have much say or, or power or control over the direction of your country and your government and your president. But it's like, you know, something like this needed to happen for. Yeah, to well, whatever. Like, hey, all you know, I know is the gonna... economy is turning on. Yeah. And that's going to help you guys for sure. Yeah. And your dog is telling us that we got to end. I this. think that's right. I think that's yeah. what he said. <laughs> I heard it. Love, love it. Well, right, well, thank, you thank you so much. Appreciate it very much. Thank, thank you so much. much.